This is Foreign Exchanges by Neom. What's next in modern money movement, one global conversation at a time. Hello, and welcome to Forward Exchanges from Neom. We know you're trying to stay on top of fast emerging changes in global payments when it's all you can do to keep up with your day to day challenges. Hi, I'm Siobhan O'Neill Schwenk, and on this podcast, we are joined by trailblazers and veteran players to investigate the real driving forces that are modernizing money movement and what's building or blocking its momentum around the world. Whether you're new to global payments, a digital transformation veteran, or you just want to hear some great advice on what strategies create momentum in the global digital payments revolution, then this is the podcast for you. Today, I am joined by some very special guests, Joaquin Ayuso de Paul, SVP and head of crypto services at Neom, and Gita Panchapakasan, VP of financial partnerships at Circle. Today, we're going to jump right in and see if we can't decode the future of banking with a deep dive into crypto. So my name is Gita Panchapakasan. I work for Circle and I basically manage partnerships for Circle around payments and financial services. So Circle basically is the issuer of a digital asset or a token, just like a Bitcoin or an Ethereum, but we issue a stablecoin, which is an asset that is pegged one to one to the dollar. We are the issuer of USDC, which is a digital stablecoin. I'm Joaquin Ayuso de Paul. I run crypto for Neum. Neum is a money movement company. We do modern money movement. We move money very well around the world, 190 countries, 100 currencies, 85 of them in real time. We issue cards in 35 of them. So everything about money movement, we can do very well. And the job we have on the crypto team is to expand this capability to the crypto world, both to allow crypto companies to engage with the traditional financial system we are connected to, and vice versa, enabling non-crypto companies to access the benefits of the crypto world and the Web3 world. We want to call ourselves the bridge between crypto Web3 and TradFi. What I wanted to start with was Web3. Crypto is a currency and payments model where Web3 is kind of this new idea for this new iteration of the World Wide Web based on blockchain technology, but it's incorporating concepts like decentralization and token-based economics. And there's a lot of people who are betting on what technologies are going to make it into the Web3 transition. And I was curious to start sort of at this macro level, because I think it's helpful to understand, Joaquin, out of curiosity, what do you think? What technologies are you really excited about or that you think are going to make it into sort of this transition from Web 2 to Web 3 based on your experience in payments and money so far? Well, uh, first, I will start by trying to define what Web 3 is. There's a, a lot of tweet comments, whether Web 3 is a new thing or not, or it's just a fluff, or it's just an Andreessen Horowitz new thing where they're pouring a lot of billions of dollars. There was a recent article in Bloomberg about it. I think that the way we define Web3 in our team and and the way we believe Web3 is better defined is any application that is leveraging the blockchain technology for the benefits of it, for the decentralization of it, for the auditability of it, for the traceability of it, and foremost, for the interoperability of it, right? So anything that your application leverages from those four items of the blockchain will be a Web3 application. And uh, it will disrupt a lot of the current paradigms 
And it will change how we do things today because it's like when Uber started, everyone was saying like, well, like you can get a taxi or you can walk, right? Why would I take Uber? Why, why would I complicate my life? And then later on, everyone discovered that the use case was actually better than uh, what the explanation was. And I think Web3 is going to bring that change to a lot of things that we do. And Andreessen had a good first point, which is is going to add economics to the base of any of the technologies that we bring in. But there is much more that Web3 will bring in. And I think that we'll talk about them on the podcast today. Gita, what do you think? I mean, I think Joaquin nailed it. Absolutely. You know, to me, Web3 is interchangeable with anything that is blockchain based. That's how I think about it. I think we will see a slow shift of multiple use cases going towards more of a Web3 model. It may not be overnight. There are going to be business applications. There are going to be consumer applications. On the consumer side, I think we're already seeing, you know, with gaming, with payments, of course, with the metaverse, there's just so much already new use cases that have been unleashed. Anything that is, you know, that can have a community-driven covenants model, anything where you can tokenize an asset, where you can have fractional ownership, like things that you really, you may have seen before, but it wasn't very efficient. It wasn't very good. Suddenly, there's a whole new way of doing it. On the business side, we may not see a lot of new use cases as such, but we will see existing use cases just much more efficiently managed on the back end, transparently managed, much more to Joaquin's point where there's auditability. Suddenly there's a level of trust in the public sphere that wasn't there before. So I think there are going to be a lot of new applications and existing applications that have just been made so much easier, so much more efficient. If there is one thing that I have learned from all the research that I've done and all the conversations I've had so far is that there is something fundamentally broken on the back end of a lot of financial applications, not just crypto, but you were talking about treasury management as well, that it takes days that you can get a wire transfer twice, that Citibank can wire $900 million to the wrong person because they didn't check an email address. It's mind-blowing to me that any transaction gets where it needs to be, basically, as a result of these conversations. Yeah, and it costs $25 to do a $100 wire. Like, it just makes absolutely no sense. I wanted to ask about DAOs, Decentralized Autonomous Organizations. These are so unique. Joaquin, I know that you've said in the past how inspiring that these governance models can be. Can you explain to our listeners what you're excited about here? Because your enthusiasm was infectious, even if I didn't totally get it when I first read it. I believe that DAOs are the response for the newer generations to how broken the current governance models are. These boards and hierarchical situations of companies and organizations, these new generations see them broken, see a lot of politics going on, see a lot of back and forth, see a lot of ego management. Their response leveraging Web3 technology is the DAO, the Decentralized Autonomous Organization. Basically, what they're saying is, let us all decide together. Currently, if you try to do that in a company, it's virtually impossible. There are so many nuances to try to make a company decide something just board level, let alone imagine the 10,000 people. Well, DAOs have proven with billions of dollars on reserves that they can do it. And they can do it well, they can do it fast, they can do it in a profitable way, and they are able to pay vendors, take very on-spot decisions, 
with voting, with the capability of getting everyone involved. And only when Web3 appeared with all the tokenization, with all the uh, the ability to program the votings, to all the ability to put everything on a traceable blockchain, with that ability and removing all the trust issues happening on that voting process, enabled all these big organizations to start doing unimaginable things, like trying to buy the constitution. I was part of the original, like on the initial team that started, I was like, I entered as number 50 or 55 on the Discord server for trying to buy the constitution. And it was a Thursday. It was crazy. That Sunday, we already had like 15 million already collected. And that Wednesday, we had 42 million collected. And then we had several other investors that came in and put even more money. And within a week, we were able to put 5,000 plus people together, raised 42 million to try to buy the constitution, a copy of the constitution in Sotheby's, no, <laughs> nowhere else. So it, DAO brings a new way of executing things that it's complete, it's a completely new paradigm. And by no means it will replace traditional corporate management. It's just that sometimes corporate management doesn't fix the situation where DAOs will. So there's going to be a new model of governance. I, I can see, for example, cities being governed in the model of DAOs where there is a city token. Miami is trying to push that way. I don't know how they're going, but that city token, all of a sudden, if I have some spare time and I want to earn some money, why not helping the city by cleaning a few blocks of my street, for example, and I can earn some tokens on the spot. There is no complications, no paperwork. I just send proof that I did my job and I get my tokens and I'm fine. All from my phone with this Web3 technology, trust is removed out of the equation because everything is trustable. So there, there is a lot that can be done with the DAO governance model that, that today we cannot even imagine. And that's what I love. It's like we're, we're learning so fast and all these governance models are mutating so fast. And you can see friends with benefits that started one way and now mutated to another way. But now they just change it again and centralize it again. All their sub believers are complete decentralization in multiple pods. And you see like all these pods going on. And then you see others that are just focusing on a protocol. It's just amazing. Uh, there is a DAO that is buying a plot to start a new city. And it's, it's just incredible. I think that there's going to be, uh, there's going to be a lot to say, a lot to say from DAOs in the future. We'll see different copycats of DAOs being applied to our traditional governance models. I'm curious to see how that evolves. I mean, that was inspiring, Joaquin. I totally bought in completely now. <laughs> I know, exactly. No, I, I mean, I, I completely agree with Joaquin that there is just, there is a lot that can still happen. I'll just throw in a little bit of the other side of it. I think certain things have to happen for DAOs to, to, to really be acceptable for mainstream adoption, for corporate adoption. I think regulation, legal structures, accounting and tax treatments, some of these things have to be created. The framework has to be created. How do you regulate something where it's a bunch of people and no one really has authority? And so there's a lot of thinking that has to go along with that. But I do agree with Joaquin that I think this is the way of the future. In certain cases, more than others, I think there will always be large organizations, I think. But then within large organizations, there may be certain like innovation pods that can be done in a DAO, you know, kind of manner. They can be, I don't know, project teams that come together as a DAO for, for one specific purpose. So th there are things that can happen. 
But I do think that there are, there are some fundamental infrastructure elements that have to be created before this will actually be mainstream adoption. But that's happening. That's happening as we speak. That's beautiful. <laughs> We're seeing new paradigms being made in the making. We're seeing like there are certain times in history that you see the shift of paradigms. DAOs is one of them. And it's just going to be beautiful to see how these the new generations see governance. And they're reflecting it on these new organizations. As Gita said, the rest of us have to follow regulations, laws, taxes. There is so much that needs to follow, but it's it's beautiful. One thing that you wrote about recently, Joaquin, was, and and this was related to DAOs, and it was fascinating. It was, it it was about companies that are experimenting with new compensation models outside of salary and stock options and the almighty IPO is the token and allowing the market to decide. It was an ERC-20 token, I believe that you mentioned. So tell me in plain English, what that's all about? Because I have a follow-up question for you, Gita, but how does that work and what is an ERC-20 token? Today, the way we compensate our employees, and especially on the tech world where we've learned how to, to basically share our upside with our employees, right? In most traditional corporations, you don't share the upside with employees. You just pay variable and cash, right? In In the tech world, we've learned that you can create stock option programs and equivalents that allow you to share the growth and the success of the company with employees, getting them involved and taking them a sense of ownership. But these programs are complicated, super hard in terms of taxation, and and they're very expensive to put up in place. And the bigger the company is, the worse the problem is. So that basically constrains the way that you can share upside with your employees. You eventually have to decide which stratus of your company can get that upside because you cannot give it to everyone or else it would defeat the whole purpose. The overhead of managing all that program would would be too big for your company, right? But what if you were able to allow your employees, all of them, to decide how much upside they want from the company? so that you don't have to worry about that. You don't have to worry about having an upside program for your employees or having a stock option pool or having to figure out how much each each layer gets from the upside of the company. Because you may have a very lower stratus person on your company that want to participate 100% on it because they, they don't need the cash. They want the upside, right? And others will be the opposite. They want all the cash. So the tokens help mitigate that problem. Why do they help mitigate that problem? Imagine imagine Uber was able to issue, instead of paying every employee and driver with money and stock options, they will pay them with Uber tokens. And then there is a market, they, they generate market for these Uber tokens and utility for the Uber tokens. What happens is I, as a driver, receive, let's say, $1,000 worth of Uber tokens a week. I can choose how much of that I want to keep in over tokens as they're going to be growing in value, or I want to cash out to be able to pay my bills. So now I, as an employee, decide how much I can take in cash and how much I can keep on, on upside, right? I can even exchange my over tokens for upside of another company, right? As of today, you cannot do that with, a, with your stock options. You're stuck with that. And the beauty of it is that you get the upside at the moment that you, you get rewarded with the upside at the moment that you work for it. Today, the stock option plans have vesting periods and you have to wait a certain amount of time to get them. This makes the upside completely fluid. 
so that each employee decides when and how. And, and, and there's very certain times where an employee, they don't want upside. They need all the cash because they, they have a big investment on their, on their life or the opposite. So the compensation based on tokens, ERC-20s are, are kind of like the go-to, but I'm sure there will, there will be new standards that will try to mitigate this. That's how we're going to see compensation happening in the future. And then that will bring new models of workforce. All right? It will be new models of workforce where I can choose to work for over 40 hours a week and then 20 more hours for another company and then 10 more hours for another company. And then I will get tokens from all these three companies and decide how much I want in, in cash and how much I want in upside. And the beauty of it, again, because it's blockchain related and it's within these standards, all these tokens can go to exchanges and they can you can create market with them so that your employees can cash them out. And then you can even create a utility with those Uber tokens. Let's say that you need Uber tokens to pay for Uber, for example, that would basically give the full utility of those tokens so that there is a market. And then you, you solve all the problems. Now, that doesn't mean that, as Gita said before, that the, the market is ready for that. Legally, tax-related, and many other aspects like uh, social security or even your uh, medical insurance, right? There are many aspects that need to learn how to live with this new compensation model. But out of the box, tokens can solve that problem. While today we're spending millions of dollars if you're a large corporation to figure out these stock option plans. So that's what I was referring on on the article that I was talking. So let's talk a little bit about the elephant in the room. And it was on the front page of Bloomberg on Tuesday about the cryptocurrency crash. Joaquin, what happened in a nutshell? What happened, Joaquin? Centelio fault. What happened? What happened? What happened? There's so many theories. The short answer. So many theories. I am in the opinion that this is a good thing. There are very unfortunate situations for people who have lost their savings, and they did as well on the crash of the tech bubble in the 2000s with a completely different industry, investment industry. So it's happening today with crypto. I think that there is a market correction that is happening, not a price correction, but a market correction. There is a clean scene of players. There's a clean scene of products and there is a clean scene of, I, I'm not going to say algorithms, but paradigms of investments that uh, and assets and assets values that were never designed to be resilient for downturns. They were always designed for optimistic situations. When a downturn happened where like Uber shares or like market shares went down 90% and crypto hands went down 90%, then all these, I don't know, like uh, completely wishful thinking ideas just went to the drain. <laughs> I think that this is a market reset. This is the 2001 tech bubble. This is basically the version of that for crypto. I mean, we've seen crypto winters before, right? It's, you know, this is the third one. And a crypto winter basically being where values of crypto tokens just crashed. But generally, those were brief periods of time and a pretty solid upside following them. This could be one of those. But truthfully, today, kind of the global economic factors that are, you know, affecting everything else, not just crypto, are also affecting crypto. Exactly as Joaquin said, crypto is meant to be a today. And to your point, Shaban, crypto is an optimistic, upside-based, it's an investment tool today. And it is an investment tool right now. It's not, it will not continue to be that. There's already a lot of inroads made into other ways in which it's used. Today, though, the majority of the, what used to be three trillion in value, not anymore, closer to one, is an investment. And because of that, it is, you know, it's an asset 
that you buy if you have disposable funds, that you wait for the, fund, the, the value of the asset to grow. But if you don't, then you know, you're, you're going to wait it out. This is not where you're going to put your money. Circle, funnily enough, has seen significant growth during this period because people are moving to stability, right? And so they're taking their money out of volatile assets and moving it into stable coins, right? And so right now, USDC has grown to like 56 billion over the last, uh, you know, three weeks to two months because people moved away from the other stable coin that imploded UST, you know, and, and the people are moving the money away from other crypto tokens like Bitcoin and Ethereum over to USDC because it's a way in which you can hold your money and not have to worry about it at all, right? So that's really what's happening. It's a move to stability. It's a move to kind of comfort and reliability at the moment. Anybody who's been reading about crypto and is kind of in the know lately is probably aware that one of the stable coins out there, UST, Terra, I believe, recently imploded. And Joaquin, I think we saw Celsius meltdown and Hex is headed there now. In fact, it may well be there by the time time we post this episode. That's how fast this is moving. So I don't mean to be combative, but why should anybody trust stable coins if we know that those are subject to the same meltdowns that the rest of the crypto market is? It's a very good question. And I was going to say Terra who, but the not all stable coins are created equal, right? I mean, that's a fundamental premise and that's something that people have to understand. And different stable coin issuers have taken different approaches to how to ensure the backing, the peg, the reserve, the stability of that coin. Today, so with Terra, for example, Terra was was an experiment. I mean, Terra was, let's keep the dollar peg of the stable coin, not based on actual dollars, which is what Circle does, but based on an algorithm that relies on supply and demand of another token. And it was, it was, it was, again, it was an interesting, it was an interesting experiment. It's, it's, you know, something that, but people lost a lot of value as part of the experiment. The way Circle does things, it's very straightforward. Like for every coin that we create, we have a dollar sitting in the bank and we actually have a third party that comes in and checks on a monthly basis. This is how much USDC you have. These are the dollars you have in your accounts in the bank. Are they equal? Great. Check. Move on. So we are, very, very particular about making sure that every dollar, every USDC we create has a dollar in the bank. And we are transparent about the fact that we tell the rest of the world exactly how much each of those are every month. So from our perspective, if tomorrow somebody wants to pull out all of the USDC that they have, we are able to very easily go to the bank, get all those dollars, hand it back to you. For for us, it's actually a very easy, easy process. It makes total sense. I think that people shouldn't get confused when talking about Circle as as if they were a bank, because they're they're not a bank. They're minting a currency. As the central bank needs to hold liability for each dollar that they issue, Circle has to hold liability for it. And and the mistake that Terra and others did with their stable coins based on algorithms is that they were not treating the stable coin as if they were a central bank, but as if they were a bank. So they were holding a certain percentage of the total value market cap of the stable coin in reserves. In the case of Terra, it was in Bitcoin, and they were holding a few billion dollars in Bitcoin just in case the price volatility would shift a little bit. But that was a percentage of the reserve. So they were working as if they were a bank. You know, banks today, they don't have 
all the cash that you put in your bank is not in a bank. It's actually lent to others. So the banks only remain with a very small percentage of the deposits in their capital. So that if more than that comes in, then if more than that percentage comes in and wants to cash out, banks can get in trouble. And it almost kind of happened in 2008. So the issue here is that all these stable coins are, as Gita said, not created equal. And we, we see new paradigms and new algorithms coming out and popping out. And, and we're going to still see how it evolves. It's part of the learning curve. The issue here is that it's so accessible that it's um, no longer qualified investors access to these products, but non-qualified investors access to, and they have a lot of money. And we can see it with the meme stocks. Same thing is happening with the cryptocurrencies. And the issue against the meme stocks is that the cryptocurrencies are not backed by any regulator. So you can lose everything in a heartbeat. And only when you see companies like Circle doing things right and making sure that there is that transparency and that every USDC is backed by a dollar is when you can start seeing that the industry is moving in the right direction. And I think that that's why Circle is working closely with regulators to to make sure that there are there is a regulatory framework that allows this to grow safely. Because... The way governments work is industries, when they go slow, they subsidize the industry. When the industry grows fast, they start taxing it and they start implementing taxes. But when an industry grows super fast, what is the first thing they do? They regulate it. I think we probably all agree that there's a lot of reasons why regulation is a great thing for cryptocurrency as a whole, or it can be a great thing when done properly. And Joaquin, you recently wrote about this, how this economy and this payments are on their way to being heavily regulated for a lot of the reasons you stated. The FCC had just has just issued a warning that it'll be developing regulations, for example, to make all decentralized exchanges register as brokerage houses with the FCC. This seems like a mess, no? Because that uh, brokerage houses keep the order books between different parties, and that ensures to the FCC that they're doing things properly. But decentralized exchanges have no such mechanism because everything is on the blockchain. So the SEC doesn't have the tools for this. Isn't that kind of counter the nature of crypto? Or is this a matter of the government needing to catch up to what the market is doing? So the governments need to catch up, but they need to catch up on everything. They always go way slower than how the industry goes. So like it's inevitable for any industry, including crypto. But I can give you another example that happened, for example, in Europe. So the European Union decided that even the non-custodial wallets, these are wallets that are outside of control of any company or any custody. The end user is the one custodying their crypto. It's like your pocket money in your pocket, right? It's exactly the same kind of like uh, concept, but in technology with crypto. They decided that every wallet owner, non-custodial wallet owner needs to be KYC. And everyone in the crypto industry just came in and said, like, how are they going to do that? It's impossible. You don't know who is out there. And I have a very simple answer to that. It is absolutely doable and they're going to do it. And the way they're going to approach it is currently the non-custodial wallets, like non-custodial wallets are basically a set of keys. Users don't handle keys. They don't know how to handle keys. They use clients. Those clients are created by companies. Consensus, for example, with MetaMask is the largest. So the first thing they're going to do is, hey, Consensus, from now on, every MetaMask that you have or anyone that is using their keys through MetaMask needs to be KYC. 
So now there is a legal entity with liability and persons that can go to jail to execute an executive order from the European Union. So in the end, all these things can be enforced and, and same with the rainbow wallets and same with the other wallets that are that are going out there, even the Coinbase wallet, which is another very prolific one out there. So same will happen with the uh, decentralized exchanges. I am sure that they've imposed this because they know how to make it happen. I don't think that the FCC will come in and just randomly state, oh, we're going to treat them like this without having an actual roadmap of how they're going to slowly, because they, the United States regulators work in boxes, right? So they make a big box and they slowly are making the boxes smaller and smaller and smaller and leaving the edge cases in a smaller box slowly, right? So they're probably going to be doing that with these decentralized exchanges like DXDY and all these guys. Honestly, I don't know how they're going to do it. I will say though, Joaquin, you're absolutely right. And I think, Shaban, to your point, it is a mess today, right? No, but there is obviously there is no kind of internationally coordinated standard, although I believe I, I have been reading that there is a plan to kind of get there. Every country is doing this their own way. China, for example, one of the first uh, pilot uh, CBDC and promptly has, you know, banned crypto trading, brand crypto. Like, where are you? Like, you know, mixed signals over there. Europe has very focused standards for stable coins that they're actually issued called MICA regulations. Singapore was very pro-crypto initially and very innovative, very forward. They've started taking interesting steps like, you know, slowly kind of scaling things back. So everybody's trying to figure things out. The U.S. government, of course, is at the base level. They're like, is it a security? Is it a commodity? Does it have to be SEC? Does it have to be CFTC? And stable coins, do they fit in either? Or are they completely separate? So they're trying to figure all of those things out. So at this moment, I think I think like right now it is a mess, I think, but there's so much attention on it and everyone's trying to figure out what to do. There will be regulation. Regulation will happen over the next, you know, three to five years. I think some countries will be sooner, some later. Like I think, you know, India, Brazil, Nigeria, where generally financial regulations are really strong. I think it will take longer for them to do anything. I mean, India is very nationalistic. So whatever they do, it's going to be their own little thing that they do. It'll be CBDCs. But I think the US, Europe, Singapore, like the G10 markets, that's going to happen within the next couple of years. We're going to have very real regulation, solid regulation. Technology will always be ahead of it. But for whatever we're seeing today, we will definitely see a regulatory framework. It reminds me to where AML regulations were 20 years ago, where each country had their own way of seeing how to protect themselves from money laundering. And all of a sudden, the problem became so big that the biggest countries came together and created the international AML organization that started putting together all these regulatory frameworks where all the countries started to adapting. So that was 20 years ago, you could see very strict AML countries and very non-strict AML countries like we see crypto today. But it's slowly, they were like slowly coordinating to end up being a, a very more homogeneous ecosystem. Today, AML regulations look very similar in most of the countries. There are some countries that focus more in some part of the AML than others. Like, for example, Asia countries versus America's countries, or even Latin America's versus the, the North America's. With crypto, it's going to happen the same. So depending on the major problem that each country may have, they'll focus on that, on their regulations, and then eventually they're normalized with the rest of the world. So we'll see how it goes. But uh, it reminds me to that time, Gita, where 
AML was all over the place and everyone wanted to do something different and you have to create all these heavily complex things to make sure that you were doing things the right way. What I want to shift gears a little bit into sort of the adoption of crypto in what we think of as mainstream payments. And I know that's a really broad topic and there are, you know, alternative payments and all sorts of things, but just in general, what do you think that the key barriers to adoption of crypto in that mainstream payment space is? Gita. <laughs> you want you want Gita uh, to start? <laughs> so I think from a from from a purely from a payments perspective, if that's what we're talking about, I think barriers to adoption is an interesting way of thinking about it because I don't know that necessarily because I think adoption is happening. Let me start there, right? Regulation to Joaquin's point is definitely definitely an, an issue. But today, I mean, we at Circle, for example, are seeing a number of companies that are asking for the ability to accept crypto-based payments because there's demand from their consumers. There are a lot of people holding value in crypto that the process of converting that value into fiat and then using that to make a payment is just like, more effort than it's worth it. So there is there is actually very active demand. Again, when you have three trillion in value, there is active demand in terms of how do I use this value that's in my pocket today to actually make a payment? Of course, the fundamental question is are people willing to expend you know value that could that is volatile that could go up or down to actually purchase products and the truth is, depending on the vertical, depending on the kind of product it is, they are. We get a lot of demand fundamentally from payment providers that are in APAC, where there are a number of newly minted, you know, rich people who've got Bitcoin galore. And they're like, I want to buy a Porsche. Can I just use my bloody coin to buy a Porsche? Excuse my language. But can you, you know, I just want to use my crypto to buy the Porsche. I don't want to go make it into money to buy it. They're like, how can we accept this? We genuinely see large transaction values come through because there are a lot of those. Now, that's not your real world scenario. That is the you know exception case. But in the real world, there's a lot happening today where you actually have companies like BitPay, which are allowing you to borrow against your Bitcoin value rather than have to convert that to fiat to pay. So there are interesting models that are being created. And companies like BitPay and OpenNode and now we're also working on kind of, you know, crypto payments are actually seeing a lot of demand and a lot of growth in payment gateways and payment processing that are purely based on crypto-based payments. I do think, last thing I'll say, is that I think ultimately what's going to happen is that the ecosystem is going to depend more on stablecoin than it is on crypto because even merchants today, they want to accept crypto because people are asking them to accept crypto but they don't want to settle in crypto. They don't want to hold crypto on the back end, but they're willing to hold stable coins on the back end, right? Today, a lot of them actually want to hold US dollars in the back end, but we're, you know, that's where we kind of continue to drive within this ecosystem. What is the value of stable coin versus holding traditional dollars? But ultimately, that's what they want to hold. They want the value of what they hold in the back end because they need to use it to pay their suppliers. They need to use it to, for their treasury needs. They can't have volatile assets for that. They want to hold stable assets for that. So even though they want to accept crypto payments on the back end, they want to manage primarily stable assets. So we see a lot of stable coins settlement demand on the back end as well. Joaquin? I'm going to 
put my point more from the consumer perspective. User experience. The user experience on Web3 and crypto is still a work in progress. I'm not going to say awful, but it's still a work in progress. Try to get an NFT. Try to get any tokens. I've tried. It's, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, there's a whole universe of language and and community norms, and it's hard to get your brain around. So in order to mainstream crypto, there's going to be the user experience. And unless you are able to get your... Pokemon cards on NFTs, and the kids are able to have those like instantly, or you can um, transact and receive uh, money in USDC by just like tapping on the phone or scanning a QR code in a much easier way. Because the problem is not moving the money around, you scan a QR code and you do a transaction. The problem is how you onboard that consumer to have that crypto on a wallet, right? And and the user experience is it's not there yet. And and there's so much work to do, including removing the word wallet. I think that wallet limits what you can do with the with the web three set of keys that, that you're given when you when you operate web three. Whomever comes with the right word will redefine the industry completely. And I don't have any candidate words, so don't ask me. But but wallet is so constrained. It only talks about value, but you can have so much more in that mechanism. In that wallet, you, you can have so much more. So user experience will be my number one by far. Okay, I'm on it. Okay. I'm thinking about it. <laughs> it has been a really wild year for crypto, not just payments and coins, but crypto in general. And it's barely half over. What are your predictions in a nutshell, maybe top three for where crypto and payments are going to be either by the end of this year or in the next three years? Like, What are the top three things that you're expecting to happen or you would be surprised if happened? Uh, we'll start with you, Gita. Man, I was hoping that one would go to Joaquin first, but <laughs> let me see what I can what I can drum up. I genuinely believe that as the you know inflationary pressures go away, hopefully you know war in Ukraine goes away. I do think that we're going to start seeing crypto values go back up, just like we start seeing overall market values go back up. I'm expecting that to happen within a year or two years. I think in the meanwhile, there are a number of companies that are out there, including Neom, that are actually working to incorporate the value of crypto into the mainstream. So we are going to start seeing a lot more mainstreaming of crypto payments, both on the B2B side and on the B2C side. Again, I, I come from a payments kind of thought process. So for me, that will be like the next big thing that will happen. And then I think the third thing is that even today, we've already seen a lot of you know investment managers and banks kind of start to open up investment and trading as part of like, okay, you know, I can buy Amazon stock, I can buy Bitcoin. And, and that's going to just continue to grow. It's going to start becoming much more mainstream for people to be able to invest in and buy crypto. I think all of these things are well on track. All of these things will happen over the next three years. I don't see the crypto market kind of going down being a long-term thing, I think it will bounce back and I think we'll start seeing all of these things becoming mainstream. Yeah, for, uh, I think Gita took the good ones. I'm going to try to get <laughs> the other ones. You could just say you agree, Joaquin. It's okay. I 100% agree with Gita. I 100% agree with Gita. That all she said is exactly what is going to happen. We're going to see from the non-payment side, we're going to see a growth of these uh, DAO organizations becoming more prominent and more front page. 
in uh, certain areas. So we're going to start seeing, for example, DAOs that are trying to attack climate change, and they're going to have so much money raised that they're going to be able to execute things that corporates or either nonprofit organizations were never able to execute before, maybe because they are in gray area, legally speaking, so they can execute in a more nimble way that if you were a nonprofit organization, maybe because they can execute things faster because of Web3, but there's going to be a, a, a huge impact on DAOs. And then the other thing is, we're not going to see the Bitcoin going very up. The logarithmic support curve says that it won't hit the all-time height until 20, end of 23 or 24. And that seems to be the theory that resonates with most of the investors in Bitcoin. So we're going to see a slow recovery from the crypto. And the best part is that we're going to see maturity on investment on crypto. We're going to see a lot more mature investment and, and due diligence on the crypto projects that you may invest. And we're, we're going to see a lot of more maturity on the projects that are going to come out, uh, out of these downturns. So it's going to be a better world for crypto investments and for the mainstream crypto investments. So uh, it will allow more people to come in and regulators are going to be more comfortable regulating what comes after than trying to regulate what was before this downturn. Okay, six months from now, set your watches. Six months from now, we're going to come back and we're going to do this again. I could sit here all day and listen to you guys. Sadly, that is all that we have time for. This was really fun. I can't wait to do it again. So thank you both. That is all the time that we have today. I want to say thank you so much to Gita and Joaquin for joining us to give us some insight and discuss what modern money movement is really all about. On this show, we're investigating the real driving forces that are modernizing money movement and what's building or blocking its momentum around the world. Make sure you're subscribed. Check us out at neom.com backslash forward exchanges or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're enjoying the show, leave us a review and tell us what you like. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Siobhan O'Neill-Schwenk, and this has been Forward Exchanges from Neom.